0: My guest today is Ji Lin. He's Professor of World Christianity at Duke Divinity School, and his research focuses on Christianity and modern China in the 20th century. Ji, um, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, now, as I said, your research does focus on Christianity and China, and the subject of our conversation today is an extraordinary book about a Extraordinary woman, although I want to say that the story begins about a very ordinary girl. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's the book is called Blood Letters, uh, the Untold Story of Lin Zhao, uh, a martyr in Mao's China. Now I want to delay talking about her importance and even what blood letters mean until later in the conversation. Um, So first of all, uh, when is she born? The basic facts, and who are her parents? Because her parents are tragic and fascinating figures themselves. Uh, it's really very poignant. That's right. She
1: was born in nineteen thirty-two, and her parents, yeah, indeed, her parents had a remarkable background. Her father was a, at one point, a county magistrate. Yes, uh, he became one as a result. Of some efforts on the part of the um, this na- nationalist government to modernize the bureaucracy, mm-hmm. and say so they open up that um, this officialdom mm-hmm. to open competition, and uh, so her father, who had done well, studied at a modern institution. Uh, sat for the test and, and came out on top, and so he became a county magistrate. Mm-hmm. But that did not go well, and that in itself is a reflection of the um, the frustrations and the failures of the this search for modernity in, yes. in modern
0: China. Yes. He was, I think, until the end of his life, he had a, what could almost be, I, I thought of as a religious... Either a prophetic or completely irrealistic hope of Westminster democracy in China was that was he refused his his failure as a county magistrate was to engage in bribes, either to bribe others or to be bribed. Right? And he he, refu- he wanted to be a model of Westminster democracy in, in national China. That's right. Try to break out of
1: this feudal tradition that he. I think that's what he would consider. Yes. And to introduce <clears throat> a this Western form of government, uh, a degree of democracy and openness,
0: accountability.
1: Yes. And that just now work.
0: No. And it, it's Lin Zhao. She regarded her father with some distance. Uh, he dies, as we'll get to, um, in 1960. Yes. Um, he commits suicide, as a matter of fact, after mm-hmm. her arrest. Yes. Um, terribly commits suicide with rat poison. Um, but so her letters from prison, her visits are with her mother. But even before that, her father was he. He was divorced from her mother. He was a little less involved with her life. That's right,
1: and um, that of course um, <coughs> was complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, what led to the to the divorce? But one part of that, uh, uh, there has to be enormous stress after the communist takeover. Yes. And the uh, Lin Zhou's father, if this former magistrate, had become a political pariah
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um, so all that and the um, exacerbated the, the problems that he had so he was um, separated from Lin Zhou's mother in the 1950s, and that may also have to do with the um the government's campaign against the um, the former um, members of the the Nationalist government mm-hmm. and the um, those uh, were considered the
0: bourgeois, yes so uh, he, from from previous regimes, even though he had been magistrate for like six months, he still couldn't get, hold a job and would not be allowed to hold a job or, or, or he was but he was definitely an enemy of the state. That's right. he was certain, there was no place for him no. in the um, in the new system. Now her mother <laughs> is even more extraordinary. Uh, her mother was a member of the Communist Party in the 1920s, correct? <laughs> That's right. She briefly embraced the communist yes. movement, and then the, the death of her brother
1: sort of drove home to her the, the reality of political uh,
0: activism. <laughs> <laughs> and so, what? And then she became a sort of um, entrepreneur. And she's on. She is, if I get this right, she was heading a bank in Suzhou in. Um, by by the late 1940s, before the fall of the government, or she was right. on the board of a bank or something. Yeah, like. she she was she was quite a, a
1: remarkable sort of modern woman. Yes, uh, produced by the uh, by the, all these uh, social changes, um, in part driven by China's engagement with the West, and um, and yeah, she she's she's was sort of a, a self-made uh, woman and became. Also, a, a delegate to the National Congress mm-hmm. in, the, in the late 1960s when Chiang Kai-shek was trying to, uh, uh, to bring together uh, different forces in society. and maybe In the in late the, 1930s? Oh, I'm sorry, right. in the late 1940s. Yeah, 40s. To, to word, yeah. In a gesture toward democracy. So yes. her mother became a, 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 what would be our, our version, the counterpart would be the, the congresswoman. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and she was a, a a a manager of a a bus
0: company. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah. And just at this time, they send their daughter to school at the best possible school that they can afford, which is a women's Methodist school. That's right. So what is that, for people who are unfamiliar with this West, the extraordinary influence of these Western Christian missions in China at the time, what is a women's Methodist school doing in Sushao? Is that where? Did...
1: That, that's right. That's right. And in fact, that school, uh, its name is um, was Laura Haygood Memorial School. That was actually not, um, not an isolated case. It was part of a much broader phenomenon. And you may look at this as, as a sort of curious phenomenon. Um, and the, the, that phenomenon began in the 1880s mm-hmm. when Laura Haygood, as the, um, a pioneer Southern Methodist uh, educational missionary, went to China. She, she was in Shanghai. And then she founded a woman's school called McTeer. Uh, school for, uh, for girls. And it just became an, an elite girls' school. Mm-hmm. Out of that school came the, um, the, the, the famous uh, Song sisters. Yes, right. <laughs> one who them married uh, Sun, Sun Yesan, the, the founder of the Chinese Republic. The other one um, uh, married Chiang Kai shek. Mm-hmm. So, so you have this phenomenon of many people, many non Christian families, yes. well to do families, sending their girls. Mm-hmm to get the very best kind of modern education for their, for their girls, Christian school. So after Laura Haygood um, died in 1900, mm-hmm. the Southern Methodist Church decided to honor her memory and then they founded this Laura Haygood School in Suzhou, uh, where Lin Zhao eventually um, became a student. How, about how
0: many schools like this uh, were there throughout China?
1: There were quite a few, and many of them were placed, they were located in those so-called uh, treaty port cities mm-hmm. uh, in the second half of the 19th century and in early 20th century. There were many of those um, treaty ports, uh, sort of western enclaves mm-hmm. inside China, along the coast mostly, but sure. also up the, the Yangtze River,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where many uh, mission. Societies were able to found these schools for girls, schools for boys, to provide them with Christian, modern Christian education and
0: liberal education. So, what was the nature of their education, the education regimen at Laura Haygood and schools like that? What would Lin Zhao have learned when she was a student there? Um, the most important
1: difference from what education she would have got. Mm-hmm. At the traditional Chinese school, oh, first of all, there was no education for women
0: yeah.
1: in the <laughs> in the old system. So the very fact that she had this um, modern education, formal education for women, it was remarkable uh, sort of development in in modern Chinese history. And one thing she would have noticed is that the um, and and then uh, students entering the Laura Hegel School earlier than she did would have noticed is that women came to the school without bound feet. Really? Okay. Uh, because, uh, you know, for more than a thousand years, mm-hmm. Chinese women, and, and ironically, many of them well to do upper-class Chinese uh, women, had their daughter's feet bound. Mm-hmm. So the having natural feet uh, was part of this modern uh, development. So that's one thing she would have mm-hmm. found. And, uh, and the curriculum was modern, as I teaches you know biology and, and mm-hmm. chemistry and those things uh history uh, western literature culture mm-hmm. uh those sort of things, and then also um, sports
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um, and and music
0: mm-hmm. so she's in this school, which sounds idyllic, and what's going on around her at the time is far from idyllic so what's the nationalist regime is crumbling as she's at Laura Hager.
1: That, that's a great question. In fact, many of the girls at this school and at other comparable schools, mm-hmm. they realize what, a, um, what an, an oasis that they lived in. Also, an island surrounded mm-hmm. by this ocean of, of misery, of suffering, of, of this breakdown of political order, yes. this chaos, this poverty. Uh, raging on, but they were very privileged in the school with manicured yes lawns and uh, rosewood wood, piano
0: and furniture you know and all the rest of it. yes. and by and then two extraordinarily important events occur in her life, seemingly almost simultaneously, she is baptized as a Christian. That's right. And then she also converts to communism, that's right. Um, both through the work of teachers <laughs> in a way. That's so right. let, just, could you describe both of those? And, and of course, they, that is the rest of her life is yes. influenced by those things. Yes.
1: So she went through a double conversion. Yes. Within that short period, she was at this Laura Haygood school for the last two years uh, in her high school. In what years would this be, roughly? Uh, this, uh She entered Laura Haygood in the fall of 1947, and okay. she graduated just before the communist takeover or the collapse of the nationalist okay. government in 1949. So under, so during those two years, she went through this, what uh, you can call it, a sort of process of double conversion. Yes, First, she was converted to Christianity, and she was baptized. We don't know exactly. What were the circumstances, and then what led to her conversion and to her baptism? What we do know is that by that time, membership in the church, religious instruction, chapel attendance were all made optional. It at, had Laura, been, at Laura Hager. at Laura Hager, it had been made optional for two decades. Oh really? So it was not a, a, a result of compulsory, you know, religious indoctrination. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, student life was actually um, it's quite lively. And it has all kinds of of influences. Students formed their book club, and, and and they also have their chapel service. And apparently, the, the communists were
0: also quite busy yeah. <laughs> working working so, among the students. So she's recruited by a teacher. A couple, so there are several teachers are sort of secret communists at that were That's right, and that was also part
1: of much broader. Uh, Phenomenon, And I don't think the communists had a hard time doing that mm-hmm. because of so many progressive youths who looked to communism as the solution to Chinese society, as the way to bring about democracy and justice and an, an end to oppression and authoritarianism and mm-hmm. all that. And that you know, easily inspired many young people. Mm-hmm. And you have many of these young teachers going to Laura Haygood and other schools uh, to spread these uh, progressive, um, what they consider to
0: be progressive, rather radical, in fact, um, mm-hmm. influence. Mm-hmm. So she goes off, is this before the fall of nationalism that she goes off as a sort of a cadre in the countryside? Could you, uh, to work is on a, work with the peasants, is that sort of secretly? That's, that's just after uh, her, her actual work.
1: Uh, In terms of joining the land reform movement, came after the communist takeover. But she did something before the communist takeover, and that is during the last, uh, at least the the final months of the of the nationalist regime. Uh, There was a lot of uh, communist infiltration Mm -hmm. and work and the underground work uh, in the areas that were still under nationalist control. And what she did apparently was that she helped print. And and uh, distribute communist propaganda leaflets Mm -hmm. uh, in in support of the uh, of
0: the communist um, um, uh, campaign. Mm -hmm. So let's go uh, through her life in the new China over the next sort of ten years. It works out very neatly um, to the Great Leap Forward. Mm -hmm. Um, She goes in the land reform. Um, movement. Describe that, because I think it's going to be very foreign to peoples. This is partly, this is an effort to change the peasants, but it's also obviously an effort to change people like Lin, um, and to, to change them as well. It's probably, perhaps even more, a greater priority, at least at that stage.
1: Yes, the, uh, the what the communist government, the new communist government launched, was the, uh, the so-called land reform movement to remake the countryside. And of course, uh, Part of this was ideological. It was along the line of the communist um, belief that they can remake the Chinese society, put an end to this um, ageless um, tradition of the landlord Mm -hmm. uh, exploiting the landless uh, peasants, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the tenant farmers and to remake the society uh, to make to bring in an egalitarian society but also it had to do with a more pragmatic uh, goal of the nation of this new government to um to extract mm-hmm. whatever they could from uh from the countryside mm-hmm. after all the rural population uh, accounted for 90 the, percent of of the chinese population so the, the government needed uh, to tax mm-hmm. uh, the um, the rural part. And so they sent these um, land reform, the so-called work teams mm-hmm. into the countryside to um, take whatever they could from the landlord and eventually get rid of them, kill them, and re- redistribute their, their wealth. The landlords. The, the landlords. Yeah. So LinDao was sent to the countryside as as part of that. Uh, believing quite naively that she was actually participating in this uh, glorious and in um, this beautiful effort to to remake China to mm-hmm. to usher in a uh,
0: a new society, which by the way she thought was not incompatible with her Christian no. belief. Yes, yeah, that was uh, you. You were stressed that that's many of the people at Laura Haygood and mm-hmm. elsewhere. That was their. That was their belief at first, and perhaps for some of them, until they died, who, who can say? Um, so part of that is the, a recurrent feature of the next 10 years is the self-criticism sessions. Um, That's right. Describe what that is. Well, the communist
1: uh, practice of self-criticism uh, started at the yanan uh, uh, rectification uh, during the Yan'an rectification campaigns in the early 1940s. That was the effort on the part of Mao and the communist leadership to have a kind of almost religious kind of indoctrination mm-hmm. of its cadres to turn them into, uh, to inflict enormous guilt mm-hmm. on the communist coders uh, on their selfishness, mm-hmm. on their very individuality, yes. and to remake them into this cocks of this machine, of the communist machine, to mm-hmm. re- uh, to create
0: a, a new society. Let's be a spiritual movement that turns a, a person into a machine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that, by the way, um, some have argued
1: that the, that particular technique, of course, it has... Um, Uh, There was borrowing from from the from the Soviet Union Mm -hmm. But some have argued there was also some borrowing from the missionary Mm -hmm. uh, Movement from 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 the Christian movement Mm -hmm. uh, Where there is this repentance. Yeah, and so the communist movement
0: was in many ways a religious and so Ling Zhao uh, It it does sound like a Quaker meeting gone badly wrong (laughs) (laughs) very badly wrong (laughs) Uh, in which uh, and, but it was
1: powerful. yes. Uh, Linda felt herself coming under its it, it sway and then she had to come to a point when she felt like uh, she almost had to go through this repentance yes. uh, before the, um, the the
0: party and I, I, I mean, and I know so you know at several points after a session like this or after an accusation in a session like this, uh, she gets drunk. Uh, not surprisingly, or there's some suicide attempts occur after these or accusations of rightism and so on. Uh, it's, these are, one sees in her experience what millions of people must have experienced. That's right. And, and I think there are real
1: um, mixed kind of emotional um, consequences for her. On the one hand, these kind of self-struggle, so-called struggle meeting mm-hmm. and self-criticism can induce a, a strange kind of a, a sense of liberation. Yeah. Sometimes you'll feel relieved when she
0: pours herself her, her pour, pour her soul out to the party. Right. Like like attending a alcoholics anonymous meeting. Uh-huh. uh-huh. I mean that's the same sort of there's a that's the sort of side of it is, I guess. Like, yes.
1: But on the other hand, um yeah, there were moments she she felt terribly depressed. Yes. And um and um uh, she got drunk at at, at yeah. times. And, um, I mean, she does not explicitly discuss how that was related mm-hmm. to those struggle sessions, but we can we You
0: can, we can infer, guess. yeah. It's a very, there's such a, there seems to be a certain relationship between the two. So, um, in, if I got my dates right, in 1953, she's been doing some journalism or propaganda as well. Um, and she's accepted to Peking University, which uh, I hadn't realized was actually, had been a Christian institution. Uh, earlier, and which is now the flagship institution, remains so, of of China. Um, so she's going into a very, she's going to the top of the pyramid. Um, this is interesting because it seems that she's almost been kept to one side. She doesn't seem to rise very far in the party cadres over those four years. She's just sort of turning around and around like uh, in Eddie but now she's at Peking what was Peking like then what was its importance uh, then and now
1: yeah first of all um, you're quite right um, she was a frustrated, frustrated revolutionary yes <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> that, that what, could be, what could
0: be worse than that <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah but finally I think she finally f- sort of found herself mm-hmm. when she was admitted to this this very top uh, university in in China. I mean she was already a brilliant student when yes. she was at uh, at Laura Haygood uh, Memorial School. so she gave up that uh, that, that uh, what appeared to her parents to be an obvious uh sort of academic career to to go to college. instead, she had abandoned that in favor of revolution, so finally came the point when she realized. That she really her passion was in, in, in learning and go mm-hmm. to and to go to school and so she applied to and she was admitted to Peking University. Now Peking University, in 1954, um, it was actually it was a um, it has two different um, you can say um, sort of a, its um, history. It has uh, two different streams mm-hmm. uh, that that flow into the Peking University. One part of that was a government university that emerged in 1898 as a part of a late Qing uh, government's reform movement to mm-hmm. introduce um, modern education. In fact, uh, it then had a a, a Westerner, a, a Presbyterian, <laughs> uh, W.A.P. Martin, as its president. <laughs> uh, but that's one stream, mm-hmm. um, that was the mainstream. But by 1954, it had also incorporated some faculty, and then particularly all the facility of a mission uh, university mm. was called the Yanqing University, right. which yes, was founded right. in 1919. was a was a, a union, uh, a Christian uh, uh, educational enterprise, mm-hmm. uh, a union enterprise because it had participation of many denominations in I the see. enterprise, and it was the premier mission education. And it was uh, that university, Yenching University was located on this um, just beautiful It sounds camp- campus. <laughs> so beautiful. Yeah, it was yeah. converted from the previous um, uh, imperial garden. Yeah. But then Peking University just took over, <laughs> took over its, yeah. its campus.
0: As one does. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a hostile academic takeover. So uh, she's there and she discovers, or it's discovered that she has a true talent as a poet and in classical Chinese poetry. That's and we must take your, I mean, and this is, I was thinking about the difficulty of conveying that to a Western audience that can't, it, this is where it begins. It's hard enough to translate poetry from Italian or Russian to English, let alone, uh, to, let alone from Chinese to English. Uh, But I I noticed later in the book, you you mentioned that she was so good that one of the judges who investigated her case actually admitted to copying down her poetry and saving it for himself.
1: That's right. uh, That emerged. I was taken quite by surprise when the judge who presided over the review of the case in in the early 1980s admitted to me. He was breaking rule by doing that. He he was supposed to keep all her file in, her, in the office, mm-hmm. but he said I secretly took home some of her poems and, and hand copied them because at the time he had no access to copy machines. So right. he, he hand copied them. They were that good. Yeah he she she quickly emerged uh, in her um in her college years as 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 someone having real talent mm-hmm. um in the um in classical poetry, and uh, one of her uh, professors really wanted her to transfer from the journalism program to ancient to classical Chinese literature program, but mm-hmm. for some reason that did not go through. But also there was a, this, there's another factor here. By the time she entered Peking University, she was 22. Mm-hmm. She began her college uh, as a 22 year old. Uh, She was born in 1932, and that was 1954. Mm -hmm. So she was more mature, and uh, and then she began um, uh, uh, serving um, on the editorial board of those uh, student publications, and um, joined the board um, of Poetry Society and and all that.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Moving ahead, a couple years, uh, we reached the the hundred flowers b- bloom moment, mm-hmm. and let's get what's the original quote from Mao. What's the
1: Mao said? Let a hundred flowers bloom and let a hundred schools contend.
0: Uh, but he didn't actually mean it, <laughs> and it was it was a, 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 a successful attempt to lure people out of you know, self-imposed censorship.
1: That's and, right. Mao Mao and, later said that, that that was his open conspiracy. He wanted to entice those liberal intellectuals out of their lair. He called it a snake's lair, um, so that he, they will be drawn
0: out to the open so that Mao can, can can get rid of them. And it worked eventually, after some a great deal of uh, understandable hesitation? That's right. Mao uh, launched
1: the movement, the Hundred Flowers Campaign, in 1956. For the first several months, most intellectuals, were hesitant. They were suspicious. I guess most of them knew <laughs> knew too well about uh, what had happened already. In the, back in the 1940s, yeah. some of the early intellectuals among the communists in the communist movement itself had. Yeah, they yeah. had uh, they had suffered um, terrible consequences for their for their criticism of the party. That was from the 1940s. So some of them may have that memory, mm-hmm. but eventually all that caution gave way when Mao made it very clear that whatever criticism that you 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 offer of the party will be considered as matters of um, the internal contradictions among the people, mm-hmm. not the kind of contradictions between us and the enemies, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i guaranteed that there will be no consequence whatsoever for your criticism of the party. And, of course, that was... a well, why? Not course. to put too fine a point <laughs> on it. Yeah. Um, that was just before we turned to them and then sent 1.2
0: million intellectuals... As he Catholics said, uh, the, this is... Um, he is... This is a quote I wrote down. Uh, Qin uh, Shi, Shi Huang, Qin Shi Huang, yes, Qin Shi Huang, uh, who was a was he an emperor? who He was the first emperor of China. Yes, that's right. Is nothing. He only buried alive four hundred sixty eight scholars. We buried alive forty six thousand scholars.
1: Yeah, and right. everybody laughed about that. Um, you know. it was a jocular moment yeah. when Mao
0: bragged. Yeah, and nothing to make a central committee meeting uh, jolly like a joke like that. <laughs> Um, so this is all part, and, and Lin is Lin Zhao is, is drawn into this. She um, she ends up defending some of these um, some of the liberal thinkers who are post or who are putting up posters, and that's the beginning of her suspicion of her being a rightist. Is that correct? That's right. And what is
1: also remarkable here, and, and that and that is she along with the other liberal students at Peking University they were. They thought they were really trying to help the party become better. It was really out of their loyalty to the party. And um, so the realization that they had been tricked yeah. in, into that did not come until later. So even when they were criticizing the party with, the, with those uh, big character posters... They were trying to see if that um, earnest, loyal criticism can help the party become better and govern more effectively. And the the betrayal uh, only dawned upon them um, later.
0: So this was a prelude really to, uh, in many ways, allow a a steadier on-ramp to the Great Leap Forward um, and to the remaking of China into an industrial society that would equal England in 15 years. So the Hundred Flowers Campaign looks sort of like a prelude to the Great Leap Forward. Uh, she's at some point in that all that tur- turmoil is accused of being a rightist, which is a terrible thing. Yes. And she has to be recondi- or she has to go through reconditioning. Uh, That's right. In order yes. to be a proper member of society, um, does she? I think she com- tries to commit suicide at, with matchsticks, or phosphorus, or the, some something terrible. At that's right, yeah. and that's after she
1: was um, labeled a writer, a, riotist a riotous, yes. with its terrible consequences. By that time, and her um, being denounced as a rightist came relatively late in the in that movement, in the
0: anti-rightist movement, almost six months later. You had me thinking that she would all... I mean, I know that she's... What what happens in the end, but there was a moment there I thought she might make it through all the denunciations. because They they keep on coming and coming, but she's not not in it yet. Yeah. And what's also remarkable here is that she was not...
1: At the beginning of this uh, 100 Flowers campaign, this effort to criticize the party...
0: She was not among the most radical or outspoken. Right. She was cautious. Yes. And very restrained. She defended she, she, other people, that's, but she said nothing herself.
1: That's oh well, she was she was quite restrained yes. in, in, in her and cautious and restrained. And she was almost ambivalent. Um, she was torn between her loyalty to the party on mm-hmm. the one hand and her gut feelings about something that was going wrong with the party. And uh, so there was this kind of period of internal struggle that she went through. Um, And then, of course, eventually, uh, by January of 1958, she was named, she was added to that dreaded list and she became a a writer. That's when she she attempted suicide because that was the moment of a complete disillusionment with communism.
0: Mm -hmm. And it does seem that after that, not surprisingly, something sort of snaps. Um, yeah. she, um, is in a romance with another writer, uh, Gangui, is it? Gangui. Gangui. Yes. Um, and, uh, she begins to worship or uh, take him to worship at the, yes. first, at the four, one of the four churches that we remains in yes. Beijing. Yes. Um, this is quite interesting <laughs> that this all happens. Is yeah. yeah. So
1: one thing, one thing that, um, that I, that I realized that, uh, after she left Laura Haygood School, she drifted away from the church. And when well, when during all those years when she was pursuing To be readmitted to the party we know that she lost her party membership after she disobeyed a party directive Mm -hmm. uh on the eve of the communist takeover and she felt terrible about it and it Mm -hmm. would just weighed down on her her as a a huge burden so all those years she was trying to work so hard to regain the trust of the party Mm -hmm. to bring to regain her membership so during those years she did not apparently she did not go to church because Mm -hmm. that was completely incompatible with the um, with, with this search for, for party membership. But in 1958, with her disillusionment, she came back openly mm-hmm. to
0: the church and bringing her, her, her boyfriend, her fiancé, to yeah, the church. And then her fiancé. He is then uh, sent to internal exile um, in 1960?
1: 1960. 1960 um, oh, no, no, that's, um, she, uh,
0: that happened in 1958. Later in 58. Yes, and so uh, she writes, starts to write poetry. Uh, can you describe very briefly um, "Seagull," her po- poem uh, referred to as "Seagull." Uh, what's it about? Um, what does it tell us about her? Uh, what, what's oh. what's she trying to convey?
1: So during that period when she was dating uh, Gansui in, in 1958 and 59, by the way, Gansui was exiled in 1959. Okay, exiled um, in uh, During that time, she was working on those two poems, and one of them was Seagull. Yeah. And it was a poem to honor her fellow students um, who had been exiled. Mm-hmm. who has suffered the consequences of being writers and possibly a lot a part of major part of this poem was written before she uh, suffered her the consequence of her own uh her criticism of, of the party before she her own uh, punishment yes um, and she felt guilty about having escaped the worst form of punishment. So this seagull, this poem was dedicated to, to those uh, who were heroes in her eyes who had been banished to this distant island. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, it ended with this uh, young man, this hero in the poem, throwing himself into, in, in, into the ocean to swim, to try to swim toward an island. But that, of course, uh, never, he never made it. But from where he went down, uh, almost like in a Christ-like Mm-hmm. descent into death uh, emerge a seagull uh, flying free. And seagull for the Chinese intellectuals in the 1950s uh, was very much
0: an, a, a symbol of freedom. Hmm. What, and then uh, even more pointed was A Day in Prometheus's Passion. Yes. Uh, which is, of course, about a rebel God who's trying to help humanity who's imprisoned by an evil tyrant god. Yes. So in
1: that poem, Prometheus Day of Passion, uh Ling Zhao turned this Greek hero uh into a Chinese freedom uh, fighter, a Chinese intellectual who has stolen the fire of freedom from heaven, and Mao became this villainous
0: Zeus. Zeus, trying to take back the fire yeah and punish forever and punish whoever would des- dare do such thing. yeah and, and then, but
1: but then of course Prometheus had nothing but contempt and pity for Zeus
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and yeah. in the case in this case
0: for Mao yes yes um, are these poems circulated are do they uh, or are they sort of written? Whether the Soviet intellectuals would say written for the drawer were these written for the drawer, or do people start to read these? Friend, I mean, does word leak out about these poems? Well, first of all, she wrote that poem in
1: 1958, 59, and um, and there was no chance of her publishing right. uh, these poems. So that, the, that opportunity emerged in 1960, early 1960, when she joined up with a group of um, exiled right students from the, an interior province, hmm. Gansu province. Uh, somehow she joined up with them and found out that they were about to start an underground periodical. And then eventually, she got her poem, um, oh, uh, Prometheus, uh, Day of Passion, published in the very f- inaugural and only <laughs> um,
0: issue. And is that the reason then for her arrest? And that was the reason for her arrest. So that's October 24th, 1960? Yes. Uh, she's arrested. Her father actually happens to be coming by the house, sees it, This, um, then he commits suicide, I think shortly after that.
1: That's right, her father, who had warned her throughout her teenage years, yes. against this illusion uh, of, of communist this utopian communist society. I warned her repeatedly, and but uh, she never heard him. Um, and so she, when he came upon her, the scene of her arrest and see how her pursuit of communism had ended up, mm-hmm. um, he said, um, uh, you know, it's, it's all over
0: Yeah, there's, what, there's nothing else that that's, he valued anymore that's right yeah. that's right and then he took his life uh, a yeah. month later um, the worst is yet to come <laughs> um, she is um, for the next the remaining years of her life she's in a continuous struggle uh, to avoid having her mind and spirit conquered I think is what she says what you bring out very clearly uh, how does she do that I mean, in a, in a certain level, we can't possibly know, or it's difficult to imagine how she could do that. But how does? What are some of the ways that she tries to avoid being imprisoned in her mind and her spirit? Well, she
1: went through also initially after her arrest in October of 1960. Uh, she went through what I thought would be was a very human sort of process when she. Uh, Try to cope with this very sophisticated uh, program of indoctrination yes. that was in place in in prison, and because you have to study, uh, you have to undergo this political study, and whose purpose was reform of your mind, the remaking of your mind, to convert and to remake your mind. Yes, and she almost succumbed to that. Yes. So by the end of 1961 and that's in part of um, in connection with some of the changes at the time that were happening to the communist leadership after the disaster of the great leap forward which led to at least 36 million deaths in chinese countryside throughout china the party embarked on some kind of a reform more pragmatic reform and so, and that encouraged her toward uh, some sort of regained faith in the party. So she vacillated. She was very. I, I found I found it mm-hmm. um, intriguing that she, she went through the process that she later looked upon as her naivety. She mm-hmm. thought the party may be able to reform. So she said, "Well, if the party can reform, I will support you again." <laughs> and um, so that's what she. That's the state that she was in when she was released on parole in the spring, medical parole right. in the spring of 1962. And, but of course, the moment she came out, or almost immediately after she came out of prison, she realized that the party has not changed and, and could not change.
0: So she returns from that medical parole.
1: She Was she suffering t- from tuberculosis? Yes, she was suffering from
0: tuberculosis. That was the reason for medical yeah. parole. And she had suffered that, I think, since the late 40s or...? It, it, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so she was always, we should imagine, she's always sickly. This is... Uh, yes. There's, uh, which adds further um, emotion and meaning to her story. I mean, she's she a, a sickly body possessed by a, a fire. Um, yes.
1: Yeah. So you, you asked earlier, how did she do that? Yes. How did she manage to keep her mind independent? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not easy and it went through really a, a long process. But I think it was a combination of several things. Uh, she herself later on reflected upon that. She asked her question, herself this question. Mm-hmm. How was she able to keep her mind clear at a time and to keep her voice, that independent voice and her mind, uh, her, her, this independent, her free mind? How was she able to do that when throughout China, intellectuals have been silenced? Um, it was not easy, but I, as, she, as she reflected upon that, she thought there was a combination of several things. What she did not mention was her fiery temperament. <laughs> <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but her, a Chinese tradition, this, um, a venerable tradition of intellectuals uh, having a sense of moral duty to other people. Um... Having a, a, uh, um, almost sharing in this mandate of heaven uh, of the ancient Chinese emperors, or having, helping an emperor retain that mandate of heaven through virtue. Mm-hmm. So there is this sense of um, responsibility, moral responsibility, as a scholar in the Chinese ancient Confucian tradition. And then there's another part was, uh, as she, saw it was um, that liberal, Western liberal influence, which had come into China in the early 20th century in the form of the, the Chinese Renaissance, cultural Renaissance, often referred to it as the May 4th movement. Mm-hmm. And she was very much steeped in that tradition of the kind of free thinking, uh, independent thinking uh, that grew out of the May 4th movement. But then she mentioned is the Christian humanism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That she had imbibed
0: in and in her years at this Methodist mission school. Yes, the combination uh, her Christianity when it's combined with the idea of mandate from heaven, uh, mandate from heaven has a whole new aspect of what mandate from heaven means uh, and to whom you're responsible and so on.
1: Yes, and so Christianity gave her, and this is what I found truly remarkable in Lin And that is Christianity gave her this moral polar star um, at a time when Marxism, Marxist doctrine was the only moral polar star for Chinese intellectuals. Mm
0: -hmm. But she found a different one. When does she begin this practice of grand church worship (laughs) as she describes it? Um, Well... and Can you describe that? Because it's... Quite extraordinary. Yeah. Because in the
1: in her prison cell, of course, she had n- nothing but party propaganda. Everything else was removed mm-hmm. except party propaganda, which came in the form of daily um, this um, newspaper, uh, the newspapers that, was, that were the, the mouthpiece of the party. And um, so she has, there's no Bible, no hymn book. Uh, but she had this almost photographic memory from the Bible verses and hymns and stories that she had learned in the in the late 1940s as a high schooler mm-hmm. at Laura Haygood, and uh, so every Sunday at promptly at 9:30 in the morning, she declared that she would begin her grand church service. Uh, this one person, grand church service in her in her cell. Uh, using those Bible verses and hymns from her memory. That's what she dug out.
0: Mm -hmm. It becomes like a mnemonic scaffold on which she can rest herself. Yes, absolutely. Because that
1: was the the, the, Christian practice, her belief, was what helped her make sense of her political struggle. Otherwise, it's completely futile Mm -hmm. futile and suicidal. But because of her conviction that it was her Christian duty to oppose what she calls this tyranny and slavery of communism, Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, since it was her Christian duty, she had to keep it up. So now we finally get to the title of the book, Blood Letters. Um, What are you referring to uh, when you refer to Blood Letters? It turns out this is actually a venerable uh, tradition uh, amongst Chinese intellectuals engaged in combat with the emperor or with the mean, but...
1: Yes, indeed, uh, blood writing has a long history in in, in China. But for Ling Zhao, it first emerged as a practical necessity. Yeah, and by blood writing we mean... She had to poke her own fingers and use her own blood to do her writing, when the writing instruments were taken away from her. Mm-hmm. And that first happened when she was incarcerated at the number one detention house, Shanghai number one detention house. And that's the place where the um, pre-trial um, uh, inmates were, were held. Uh, that was the place for interrogation. And number one detention house was particularly for political uh, prisoner. Yeah. So she was held there, and she called this a demon's den. Oh, it
0: was a place of, awful place of, a, of torture. It has a terrible history. It's, it's, it has a terrible history. It's right up there with Lubyanka and Buchenwald, <sighs> or it should be in, in the memory. Um, and they use all, I mean,
1: they have ingenious means of torture. They could claim that we don't beat prisoners, but the pain inflicted from different settings of tightness in the uh, the handcuffs and different ways of applying handcuffs, uh, it can break your bone. Uh, it um, it was a an ingenious art almost yes. of, of inflicting pain. And so, uh, for 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 instance, for a period of six months, Lin Zhao um, was handcuffed um, nonstop and And often, behind her back, with two pairs of handcuffs that 's when she took up blood writing because <laughs> her pen and pen um, and everything else was taken away and she also, along with blood writing, when the particular form of writing she did mm-hmm. um, she chose four character rhymes to write her initial blood um, to do
0: her initial blood right. Can you explain what that is to the those of us ignorant?
1: SD, the, 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 the four character rhymes were the most um ancient huh. form of Chinese poetry, uh dating from the first millennium uh, BCE. But to Lin Zhao, it also served a practical uh purpose because you cannot write a lot when, <laughs> when you have your hands handcuffed, um, you know, yeah. and, and, and behind you. And and behind you. Yeah. And uh, so, using her blood as the only ink that was available to her, and she wrote that on her shirt. And uh, and also, um, according to her sister, um, she had often asked for uh, sheet, white sheet, and
0: apparently she tore up the sheet to write, st- and she did some of her blood writing on those sheets. So she does this out of necessity as time goes on she's also doing it as a kind of a statement yes and she does it so often you say that her fingers would she couldn't eventually they were they were so scarred or so and so you know. numb that she could
1: not squeeze any more blood from her left finger yeah huh. um, yes she, so she did that as a matter of necessity initially but then later on she also did that as a um, as a form of protest yes. when when they whether there were no other forms of, of protest, effective protest, and and indeed, in doing so, she tapped into this long Chinese tradition of, of blood writing, which had its roots in the ancient Buddhist way of of showing religious devotion mm-hmm. to the to the Buddhist sutra, mm-hmm. uh, but eventually it sort of bled into the Chinese <laughs> so, culture, so to speak, <laughs> and. Um, and, and so uh, as a sort of ultimate form to demonstrate one's sincerity yes
0: well and <laughs> it, it rarely must it could rarely have been better used um, to demonstrate that can we we're running way over time uh, could we uh, could you just explain her long letter to people's daily uh, that seems to be a sort of a The keystone of her prison writing is the letter to People's Daily. You referred to it several many times. Uh, It's first of all, how many characters is it? It's very long, and it's all it's in blood. I take it.
1: Uh, It um, total about hundred forty thousand characters, Chinese characters, which is a long statement, a long
0: letter at least. And
1: this particular letter was not done in blood. She made a calculated decision not to do this particular letter in blood because she had another. Blood writing going on exactly the same time. Okay. So she said, "I'm not going to use blood for this letter to the People's Daily, Uh, but she was going to uh, use a kind of compromise. She would use ink. By that time, that's 1965." Mm -hmm. Uh, she had already been sentenced. Removed. She had been moved from the number one detention house to Chao prison. And what's her sentence at this time? Uh, this this time the sentence was twenty years. Okay. She was sentenced to twenty years for her role in the under, publication of this underground journal called Spark of Fire, and for her contributing her poems to that mm-hmm. uh, to that um, journal. And so that was the the second half of 1965, and this was her, her first chance to sit down and write. Now uh, pen and paper uh, uh, will return to her. And and so she decided to use ink for this long letter. Uh, it was sort of her political statement, mm-hmm. manifesto, and, and, and um, against the communist
0: dictatorship. So you see, it's long, it rambles at times. That's it's right. also very brilliant at, at, at points yes. and, and beautiful. Yes. Um, like a, as a... a, a a, st- a political statement by a brilliant poet in other words <laughs>
1: yes and it was um it was a very difficult one and um she stamped every page multiple times with a self-made um, seal personal st- seal bearing her her given name Zhao, uh-huh. uh, but that was inked in her blood um as as uh, her as her statement and she wrote that addressed that to the editorial board of the people's daily that was the the mouthpiece of the Chinese Communist Party in which she lay out her, um, her charge against the tyranny of communist revolution, against uh, Mao's dictatorship. Mm-hmm. And um, it was also a sort of manifesto about her, her liberal convictions, um, her belief in, in human dignity, in freedom, her belief that um, the communist dictatorship will eventually give way to democracy, but then in which she also outlined the principles under which she would fight for freedom and, and democracy, and that it's going to be a non-violent struggle. Uh, she said the Chinese history has been full of blood, bloodshed. Enough, enough of that. Enough of blood. Yeah. There should not be any more blood. It's so bloodshed.
0: powerful that she's saying that while she's stamping the thing in-
1: and blood. That's right. And she said um, she said she would even recognize occasional sparks of humanity in the very core of evil. Very... Among, among those who had inflicted enormous pain on her and at the very core of party leadership, she said, I could still glimpse occasional
0: sparks of humanity in you. That's right. It's, she could have read Solzhenitsyn except that they were, they were writing simultaneously in different prisons. <laughs> Um, she is eventually um, s- sent to execution. Yes. Uh, when and why was it? The, was it this letter? I, I'm presuming, of course, that the People's Daily were never hor- uh, their horrified eyes never actually read this letter. But <laughs> it was stopped by the prison authorities. That's
1: right. The prison authorities never let her her letter get out of um, yes. get beyond the prison
0: walls. Was, was it? I, and also, I assume there was acts like this. That made her eventually regarded as being um, unable to be rehabilitated.
1: That's right. There was no hope whatsoever uh, on the part of the prison authorities that she could be reformed the way yes. the party uh, was envisioning uh, the prison sentence would, would, would do. Uh, but that also was complicated. There were several factors contributing to that. The, um, the radical um, uh, way of her, this continued opposition, open, declared opposition to communist dictatorship. And that was, again, there was unrivaled. There was no parallel in to that uh, throughout the 1960s. No. We, we know
0: of no one else like this? That's right.
1: We're there, not- there were other forms of political dissidents that were actually uh, part of, um, connected to uh, factionalism within mm-hmm. parties. So they were criticized sure. one party, Leader, that doesn't. That's just in, in favor of another one. That's just rats one.
0: struggling on, on a, you know, a that's, lifeboat. That's that, that's not,
1: That's right. And was and those distance did not transcend the communist ideology and yes. system of communism. She, her voice was the only one that that break out of that. And um, so, and so she was doing this. And um, so the 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 very nature of her of her this unrelenting struggle. Um, against the the party, that was one uh, major uh, factor contributing to this change of sentence from twenty years in prison to um, to the death sentence. But then the, the radicalism that was brought on by the by the launch of the Cultural Revolution after um, May of nineteen sixty six that also contributed um, to the to the eventual uh, eventual. Um, um, death sentence. And when is she executed? Uh, the earliest time that her, this, there was recommend, recommendation to change the sentence to a death penalty actually happened in in late 1966. As as as, as that, but that was um, then delayed because of huge turmoil within the the the, the, the penal system in uh, <laughs> the, uh, the judiciary system in in in, in Shanghai. And then but then so that um, so that her actual execution did not come until April 29
0: 1968 and that's sort we'll get to back to that date because that's uh, that's become important um, how in the world everyone must be I know everyone asks you this when you give a talk and I know that listeners must be wondering this why in the world do we know anything about her that um, you've just said the prison authorities confiscated all of her writings. They never made it. Um, how is it that you have been able to write a book about her and quote her at length? Uh, how is it that her writings survive?
1: Well, the very fact that her writings survive is really one of the great ironies of this, uh, of this dictatorship that was in place. You know, one consequence of this dictatorship Is um, its rigidity? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) No prison or public security officials dare to risk a serious political mistake by doing by making any kind of personal judgment and decision about her her damning writings. Um, The the um, the the most damning kind of of um, of um, evidence um, against the party's dictatorship against torture in prison, against all kind of hum- inhumanity but all those writings were dutifully confiscated hmm. or from all prisoners and in minnja's case she just handed over. Mm-hmm. She knew that's where it's going to end up. She handed over to the to the prison guards. And uh, but the the prison sentence uh, the, the the system was such that they had to file away every single bit of of writing and, and save it and save it forever. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: it put it into the file uh, yeah. as part of this evidence against her. Uh,
0: Counter revolutionary. It it just points out once again that totalitarian regimes are wonderful for later, for future historians. (laughs) They they save everything. That's right. (laughs) Um, And
1: I brought up that question when I interviewed this judge, uh, who of course revisited her case uh, many years after her execution. And she said, yeah, uh, they were all there, but they had to separate. Uh, all her writings into two so, so separate so folders, uh, two file. Uh, one was the primary file mm-hmm. called "Zhengdang," and that would include her interrogations, and, mm-hmm. and that's
0: still locked away. It's locked away, so we don't know what she was subjected to. We just know that it was.
1: That's right. Yeah. And um, according to one journalist who had one glimpse of her uh, interrogation, uh, that was in uh, maybe 1980. Mm-hmm. And he said her 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 retorts her response were brilliant, <laughs> but so they were locked away. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, then there was a secondary. Uh, then were then there were other writings that were put into her secondary uh, file, mm-hmm. and those were who, those were the writings that were eventually
0: returned to her so, family. oh, I see how this works in the bureaucratic mind. That was the the interrogation records were of course not hers. They were the property of the state. And the other was the property of the family or the uh, sort of her possessions and therefore must be returned to the family.
1: And I guess hmm. it's also because of their judgment that interrogation, of course, would have to be most directly connected to her revolutionary crimes. Yes, yes. Right. And then all her other writings, her letters to her mother, her more personal writings. Uh, and I I don't know how much time and uh, the prison guards spent reading through her writings and hmm. how competent they were <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> reading and deciding because a lot, a lot of poems or yeah. poetry and all these literary allusions to ancient yeah. Chinese
0: uh, uh, classics and, 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 and text And models. I presume that when she's writing classical Chinese, she's using characters in different ways and making allusions that they might not be educated enough to... Pick up on is that would that be right?
1: That's right. That's right. And, and because um, she often adopted a uh, a particular Chinese form of uh, poetry, it was uh-huh. a very very difficult one. It's called seven character rhymes. Each line would have seven characters, and it's a very strict rhyming pattern, hmm. totaling eight lines. It's very hard to to do that. You have to. um, So it's 49, so you only have, oh my goodness. Yeah. (laughs) You have to pack so much into into a seven character rhyme. It's
0: full of literary allusions and that many gods simply could not understand. Yeah. Yeah. So she uh, is retried, in effect, in 1980, 1983. Um, Yes, her case uh,
1: posthumously uh, was brought to the Shanghai High People's Court twice in 1980 and and again 1981. And in both Mm -hmm. cases, the Shanghai High People's
0: Court threw out all the charges and uh, declared her innocent. And that's when her mother finally receives uh, Lin Zhao's writings.
1: That's when, uh, then in 1982, okay. when the, that process was complete, okay. legal process was complete, then the letter, her prison writings were returned to the family. By that time, her mother had died. Okay. Uh, that was the, so her writings were
0: returned to her sister. So how did her writings begin to become known? How did, what, do we have any understanding? I mean, this must be very difficult to chronicle, um, or is it, uh, how her writings began to spread?
1: It's a combination of uh, different factors, a combination of the devotion on the part of her friends and former classmates to preserve her legacy, once they have seen that. Uh, yeah, but also there were other factors. Uh, her family, one of her surviving relatives, uh, called Xu ming uh, her uncle, turned out to be a researcher. At a top Chinese um, research institution, the uh, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, and so he got hold of her of this uh, letter to People's Daily, and um, and then there were these connections our former classmates who learned about his his. Uh, Lin Zhao's fiance, mm-hmm. who was sent away to a remote part of China, Xinjiang okay. province, as far as he could be sent, yes. and who only learned of her death in 1979 after he himself came out of exile. And of course, when he heard about Lin Zhao's writing that he survived, he wanted to do his part to preserve her legacy. So this is just one example. Mm-hmm. Of a a, um, a combination of efforts on on the part of so many people, were they actually published in China? They were not published, no. because there's no chance for for these okay. to be published. I'm sorry to ask a naive question, <laughs> but, <laughs> but in the 19, in in the two thousands, the first decade of, of this century, um, her some of her writings, not all, mm-hmm. on some part of them, particularly this letter to the People's Daily, uh, were carefully. Um, Deciphered. I mean, Lin Zhao's uh, handwriting would have to be... Um, the, the prison writings would have to be... You have to have someone to read her handwriting. I mean, she, she wrote beautiful calligraphy. Mm-hmm. Still, there were places that you have to um, to tell what her, the, the words really were. In any case, one, once they have sorted through her writings, and they digitized that and, and posted it online, and that's when it became... Um, you know what I would consider almost a Promethean fire to um, to contemporary Chinese con- mm. uh, descent.
0: So where is she now uh, amongst Chinese dissidents? Uh, she is now uh, a heroine, the heroine. She's but she's become of, of tremendous importance amongst Chinese dissidents uh, and, and all those interested in a different future for China. I, I think that's that's safe to say.
1: That's right. Um,
0: many leading
1: Chinese uh, dissidents have been the among the the chief reason for Lin Zhao's influence be so uh, well uh, widespread become so widespread. One of them, uh, the earliest to 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 see the fire in Lin Zhao's writing was uh, Ding Zhuling, uh, this Tiananmen mother whose own 17-year-old son had been killed during the Tiananmen Massacre. And and so Ding Zhilin, for many years, had become this symbol of this um, this movement to push for government accountability, uh, reconciliation, truth and and reconciliation in in, in China. And so Ding Zhilin was one who said she had discovered uh, Ling Zhao. Ding Zhilin, by the way, was a former... Uh, also, uh, an alum of Laura Haygood Memorial <laughs> <laughs> School. So uh, it really makes one rethink uh-huh. the legacy of American missionary work yeah, uh, in, in, in early 20th century China. But then uh, in, in my book, I quote uh, the late Nobel Peace Prize uh, laureate Liu Xiaobo, yes. who after reading Ling Zhao's re- prison writings, called her the only voice of freedom left for contemporary China. And I suspect that he said that for at least two main reasons. Mm. One is how her descent had transcended petty factionalism that we found in other kinds of dissidents that's not uh, really meaningful. But hers really was a transcendent kind of, of descent. And it's her call for this Dignity, the, the the recognition of the dignity of of human rights and freedom and um, her demand on, on human freedom, that was transcendent. But second part, how she rejected violence, yes. and that was inspiring to him. So Liu Xiaobo later on called, I mean, he, he made his statements. I have no enemies. He wanted to break out of that, what he called a cycle of violence, no. You end a cycle. In the past of China, Chinese history, there tend to be this cycle of ending violence, replacing with a different form of
0: violence, or using violence to destroy violence. Yes. Um, Just as we finish, describe what happened on April 29th, 2018, at her tomb. Because her tomb has become, I've I've seen you say, uh, it's become a place of, as it were, pilgrimage. Um, and just as the dissidents are aware now of who Lin Zhao is, so too is, a, is the government, uh, a government who is increasingly uh, micromanaging and apprehensive about just about everything. Uh,
1: yes. For more than a decade now, her tomb has become a pilgrimage site for democracy and uh, human rights activists from all across China. So the government... Became aware of that, became alarmed by that um, as far back as 2008, just ahead of the um, Beijing Olympics, and so they began to um, to install a surveillance camera over her, her tomb and to post police, both uniform and plainclothes police, to block the um, the path to her tomb and to turn away democracy activists, those pilgrims. So there's been this annual ritual of police clashing with democracy activists, and then and and so 2008 that was that's when it began, and that was the 40th anniversary of her execution. And so this past April 29th of 2018 was the 50th anniversary. Of that um, of her execution, and of course the uh, the police uh, government was quite aware of that. But the police has become uh, very sophisticated in in um, turning away, uh, in bullying, and um, in, in in scaring away uh, democracy activists. They, they would actually begin. Uh, they would track social media. So the moment people started organizing. Mm-hmm. This pilgrimage to to Suzhou, way before they even got on the train, police already in action mm-hmm. and uh, putting them under house arrest or all that. So they were able to to keep most of those uh, pilgrimage pilgrims away. Still, uh, there were some who eventually break through and was a- were able to break through and to 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 make it to Lin Zhao's tomb. Um, three people, uh, three democracy activists, uh, were able to to get to Lin Zhao's tomb just before midnight. Uh, that's on April the 28th, just before midnight. They knew that the police would be there. Uh, by that time, there were many surveillance cameras already installed and police uh, had been posted there for more than a month. <laughs> and so so there were democracy activists there and one of them called Zhu Chengzhi with whom I have been in contact. And and and, and so there he and his friends were able to make it there by crawling under an, an iron gate that the police <laughs> had, uh, had installed uh, on the stone, stone path leading up to her tomb on the Linyan hills. And a friend captured a moment of that, took a picture of the moment when Zhu Chun should crawl under this iron fence, bearing a bouquet of flowers in his hand. And this is a someone in his 60s, early mm-hmm. 60s. He had to make this pilgrimage, and then he made it to her tomb. And uh, within minutes, police arrived, took all the three away, released the two after some um, interrogation, but then kept Zhu Chengzhi under what they call the designated... Um, 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 Surveillance, residential surveillance in designated place, which they could do for up to six months. That is interrogation at an undisclosed facility for interrogation. Mm-hmm. So he was kept there for six months until October 29, mm. when finally he was transferred to a, a regular detention house. So after he disappeared for six months, finally yes. we, we we found we learned about two weeks ago yes. that he has now been formally put under what is called a criminal detention mm-hmm. just for bringing his flowers
0: to, to, to Lin Zhao's tomb. Well, that will probably not be the last time that Lin Zhao, or her memory, her legacy creates events, inspires them. Mm-hmm. My guest today uh, has been Ji <laughs> Lin. Um, he's professor of rural Christianity at Duke Divinity School, um, and he's author of a tremendous book, uh, Blood Letters, The Untold Story of Lin Zhao, A Martyr in Mao's China. Ji, thanks so much for talking with me today. It's been fantastic. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.